0: Camper mentioned earlier, we have the privilege this morning to have a guest with us, John Freeman, who is the founder of Harvest USA. And I've known John for a number of years, but as we talked this morning, we couldn't remember where we met. And actually, we see in this relationship kind of both the beauty and the weirdness of social media uh, because we are much closer than we ought to be based on the amount of time that we've actually spent together. I didn't think it was that profound, but anyway, that was, uh, but, uh. but John emailed me a few weeks ago and said that he'd be in Williamsburg. John's a longtime friend of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church as well, and I wasn't going to let the opportunity go by to let him sit there with you when we could get him to get up here and to share the message that he has for us, which is a message that is important for the body of Christ to hear. So John, if you'll come, share with us about your
1: ministry, and then the word of God with us. Thank you. Actually, Dennis and I have a couple things in common. Uh, he ministered for many years in, in my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I minister in, our ministry is located in Philadelphia, where he's from. But uh, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I've been here several times. It's great to be here again. I was preaching at an Afro-American church on Friday night, which is wonderful in uh, Norfolk. Uh, actually, my wife and I honeymooned here 40 years ago, so it holds a, a special spot in our life. We brought our kids here on and off. I actually, during one of my downtimes at seminary 30 years ago, and seminary students do have a lot of downtimes, times, uh, I wondered what, what God was doing in my life, so I saw a vacancy for a cabinet maker in the Colonial Williamsburg, and I applied to that. I'm so glad I didn't get that job, because I wouldn't be talking to you today if I had. But uh, uh, I uh, went to seminary hoping I was going to go for three years and get back to the South as quick as I could. But the Lord had other intentions and steered me into a ministry in cooperation with a church there years ago called 10th Presbyterian Church. Um, And and I'm not going to go a lot into that during the sermon because I want to preach the text. But I just brought a short DVD to explain to you what Harvest USA is all about. So can we see that?
2: It's a tremendous challenge for men to seek help at Harvest USA. Many have described it as taking the walk of shame. After 30 years of keeping this in the dark, he was almost paralyzed with fear because I was the first person he's opened up to about his struggle.
1: After she confessed to me her struggle with pornography and other
0: sexual sins, this dear young woman burst into tears. These secret struggles that she would kept hidden for so long were finally out into the light.
2: It's never easy for people to walk through our doors at Harvest USA. Living in the isolation of guilt and shame is difficult to break out of. Through our direct ministry to men, women, wives, and parents, we minister to over 800 people a year. And we point them to freedom in Christ, to transparency in Christian community, and to God's kindness, which leads to our repentance. Most men coming to Harvest live isolated, defeated lives. They feel powerless to combat their sexual sin and they don't know the blessing of community or joy in their relationship with God. The men's ministry enables them to experience the power of the gospel and connects them to other men in real ways. In meeting with wives who have experienced sexual betrayal, it's always amazing to me to hear that through their suffering and experience, they understand so much better how we all betray Christ and yet still receive his forgiveness. Parents from all over the country are hearing from their son or daughter that they identify as gay. Here we have the unique privilege of caring for hurting parents who are wrestling with this, finding that the promises of God are relevant and true, giving support and hope in their time of need. Direct, in-the-moment prayer is an important part of Harvest work. Often I'll have a parent calling in in tears or pray over the phone. And then to see how God used that prayer to calm the caller, it's, it's an amazing blessing.
1: Women of all ages contact our women's ministry team sharing with us what we consider to be the very
0: fine china of their hearts. Struggles with sexual sin or relational sins that they've never talked about with anybody. It's a joy and it's a privilege for us to bring the hope of Jesus to these hurting women. One of the privileges that I have working at Harvest USA and one of the ways that I see God use me is being able to go eyeball to eyeball with men who know that they're sinners and know that their behavior
2: has messed up their lives and be able to tell them Jesus loves them. By using the Word of God, Harvest has better helped me to be equipped to fight my sin and understand my sin. While I know that there's a stigma that's attached to the sin or the sins that's brought us all here, that our sins are washed just as white as snow as anybody else's sins, and that's amazing to me.
1: Harvest USA
2: is women's ministry guided me in my understanding of God's design for
1: sexuality. This ministry provided me with the tools in bringing about my healing and restoration for my life through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
2: I tried a number of therapies as I sought help for my sexual sin. What I really needed was a changed heart.
0: I came to Harvest after losing everything because of my sin. But instead of finding condemnation and rejection, um, I really found a spiritual and emotional shelter that made it possible for me to um, be open and honest about my sin for the very first time.
2: We believe that ministering the grace of Jesus Christ to those impacted by sexual struggles and sin is a role that belongs to the church. And so we now engage in over 300 teaching and equipping events every year more and more churches realize they can't stay silent on these issues any longer and so we're excited to equip pastors church leaders and congregations in this vital area of ministry in overseeing our website I see more and more people reaching out to Harvest USA not just here in the US but throughout the world and this shows us the importance of our work here at Harvest USA and our need to continue it. What
0: I love about the student outreach is to see parents and youth workers get that talking about sex and sexuality is really about sharing the gospel and applying the gospel to all their kids and students lives. What he said I oversee what we teach and what we say from our seminars to our blogs. Our passion is to see the gospel shape people's lives so they might
1: live the life that God has called us to live. As the founder of Harvest USA I've had many duties over the years Today, however, I focus on teaching and resource development, but primarily nurturing relationships with pastors and with our ministry partners, helping them see how their giving and participation really is an investment in eternity because it's a gospel investment in hearts and lives.
2: Proclaiming the majesty, power, and new life of Jesus Christ to people who have been beaten down by sexual sin, that's the heart of Harvest USA.
1: That says more in five minutes, and I could say in an hour, right? Um, Harvest USA is a ministry to and for uh, our PCA churches. We're just like any missions organization, uh, we don't charge for anything we do. It's uh, uh, the generosity of God's people that help us be there. It started with me in a room and a telephone 33 years ago, and now we have 23 staff that are out and about uh, on any given weekend, educating and equipping churches. Uh, today, uh, and by the way, uh, you can uh, look at some of our resources out there. We do put out a magazine that comes out twice a year that's very helpful. This one is called Living Faithfully with Our Bodies. It matters, but the church has to help. This one is Voices That Confuse, Reclaiming Biblical Truth from Interpreted Distortion. And our brand new one that just came out this week, Transgenderism, Reshaping, Reshaping of Reality and Our Need to Understand It as Christians. Uh, so pick up one of those. If you sign up for it, we'll send it to you twice a year. And also our webpage has many, many other... Uh, resources and I could even bring harvestusa.org uh, on there now the pastor said we've had a difficult week I'm going to actually continue that by talking about a difficult subject today um, and as I uh, come here this morning uh, to hear and as we talk about and listen to what God's heart says about uh, some of this I'm aware that I'm on sacred ground you know you're always sacred ground when you're behind a pulpit <laughs> You're always on sacred ground when you open God's word, which is authoritative and inspired, not just a book of good ideas. Um, It's his heart about issues of the human heart. And also, I think we're on sacred ground when we talk about sex and sexuality. And I know I risk doing that, um, causing some people to squirm in their hearts a little bit because of struggles that you've had that you've never told anybody about, that you've lived in secret and isolation with. And I know you may also squirm a little bit inside uh, because perhaps you have idols in your heart regarding these things where you have said, hands off to God, that belongs to me. So as we look at the scripture very quickly this morning, uh, it's a passage that a lot of us have read, but maybe we've not contemplated. Uh, We don't kind of just choose to expound on it for it being there because it contains difficult and stunning words. But I believe there's never been a more certain and timely need to take what Paul talks about here to heart. Uh, Because what Paul talks about in this passage is so contrary to our own hearts and lives. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like those who don't know God, And in this matter know which to defraud others or take advantage, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we have told you and warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but to live a holy life. Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit." Now, very briefly. We're going to look at the content and the reality of what Paul's talking about here in three ways. Number one, we're going to look at it as what he's saying here really is crazy to the culture we live in. Right? It's crazy to the culture. The way it impacts our own people is often concealed in the church. And thirdly, we're going to look at how God gives clean clothes for corrupt people. So, crazy to the culture, it's concealed often in the body. But God gives clean clothes for corrupt people. Now, if you know anything about 1 Thessalonians, you'll know that it is thought to be Paul's first written letter. It's the letter of a exiled missionary about 20 years after Christ died to a church he planted on his second missionary journey. Thessaloniki was the second largest city in Greece. And he's writing, and he uses words uh, that are very loving. The words he uses for brethren really means, in the Greek, uh, you're talking to family members. And if you read his first three chapters, uh, you would see that he talks about the good report he's hearing back uh, about their progress in the Christian life. But here in chapter 4, he makes a little uh, uh, side trip here to specifically talk about one area. He, uh, he details an exhortation and an admonishment about continued godly living Really, he's talking about the difficulties any young, vibrant, energetic church, uh, yet imperfect body of people might experience as they start to begin to follow Jesus in difficult areas of their life. So the things that used to characterize their life, now that they're followers of Jesus, stop not characterizing their life. And it's about this exhortation that we're going to talk about for a few minutes. The fact that Paul was talking and calling the church to live a holy life, to avoid sexual immorality, and to actually learn how to control your own body, which you can't do until you learn how to control your own heart, by the way, uh, was quite radical for people at that time. They had not ever heard a message like that. But I would say it's probably just as radical today in our culture, isn't it? Very radical to honestly try to look like what Paul describes here, to try to live like that. Uh, is craziness to the surrounding culture. And you know, to be true, sometimes it can appear craziness to us as well. Um, I was teaching on this uh, passage to a group of about 150 men in a PCA church a few months ago, and just as soon as I read this passage, it was brought home to me uh, about this, a young guy, the minute I stopped reading the passage, jumps up, yells out, that's crazy, God doesn't expect anybody to live like that anymore. Now, I was a little taken aback, but I realized he's probably just putting a voice to what a third of these young men in this room believe in their functional theology. For the early church, which this letter was going to, though it became about what's called inverted living. Now, what is that? Just this. These people who are now following Jesus were people who were once stingy with their money and their possessions, but very liberal with their bodies. But they became just the opposite. They became those who were very liberal with their money, as in Acts 2.45 it says, seeing that they had all things in common, they began selling many possessions and goods and giving the money to anyone who had a need. So they became very liberal with their money, but get this, they became very stingy and possessive now with their bodies. I can't do what I want to do with it anymore. It's not mine. And according to this passage, it's indwelt by God. So that where I go, God goes. Now, Paul doesn't mince words here. He admonishes by contrasting the person who's regenerate with unregenerate. Saved, not saved. And he pleads with him. He says, I ask and urge that you do this more and more. What? Learn. Learn how to control yourselves in Christ. Not in lustful passion like those who don't know Christ. But in a holy honorable way. So this passage is talking about holiness in our lives. Now, I don't have to tell you that for people out there on the street, for your co-workers, probably for many in, at your, your classmates and, and at university or school, uh, to live like this uh, isn't just way up there on the scale of priorities, is it? Uh, it's kind of crazy to them. Uh, what is natural, is what Paul alludes to here, is that our, our hearts be fueled and driven by all kinds of lust. And in fact, if you were to go ahead and read the next chapters of, uh, we're not going to get into, starting in verse 9, he starts talking about love. He's contrasting the two things, love and lust. Now at harvest, often I've had to make definitions of words so that people understand better what it is they need to deal with in their life. And years ago, I came up with a definition for lust. Let me share that with you. Lust is that heart hunger in me that takes those made in the image of God, online, on a DVD, on a magazine, in here, up here in cyberspace, and reduces them to what I can get out of them to fill my hungry heart right now. Let me say that again. Lust is that heart hunger in me that takes those made in the image of God and reduces them to what I can get out of them to feed my hungry heart right now. You see, Paul says the nature of lust is that it devours, it uses, it disregards. And although he says this is what has characterized many of you that have now come to Jesus, it's what should no longer go on characterizing your life. On the contrary, it's that which we need to be rescued from. Now, one of my favorite theologians uh, that lived many hundreds years ago was a guy named William Law. Now, you've probably never heard of him around 1750, but you've heard of his three best disciples: Jonathan, uh, I mean, uh, George Whitfield. Charles Wesley and John Wesley. So if there had been no William Law, there probably had been no George Whitfield or the Wesley brothers. But in a sermon, William Law said this, We need to know one thing. The gospel, our salvation, consists wholly in being saved and rescued from ourselves, from what we are by nature, and from where our hearts would naturally go. I love that. So Paul is really making a, a big deal out of this. Maybe that's why we, we avoid this top this topic in this passage. Uh, really, he's demonstrating in these uh, verses that who we are sexually re- reveals who we are spiritually in a sense. Uh, and the Lord cares about what we do with our bodies and our hearts because it reveals our allegiance to Him, and also because obviously of the damage interior damage that it does taken in bad directions. and uh, and in the body as well. In other words, the crux of this passage, you might say, is that our sanctification, that is our growth in holiness, is always linked to how we live our sexual lives. And if you haven't noticed, in our culture and in our world, it's getting harder and harder to live like Paul calls us to here, isn't it? No one escapes the impact and the assault uh, in our worlds of of, uh, sex being... Uh, the thing that motivates things, and it sells everything. Uh, And he gives us the impression in this text, uh, because he contrasts those that have the spirit and don't, that it's actually unnatural for a person to want to live like this, unless you've had a deep and ongoing encounter with Jesus Christ. Uh, Isn't that true? It's only when God, through his spirit, starts to, to mix it up with us that he even gives us the desire the will, or the power to be different. Uh, and even then, if you're a follower of Jesus, it can still be a heck of a challenge, can't it? Uh, now, um, and again, we don't escape. I think that I see more young people, young men, middle-aged men and women, walking around in a sexual fog, I would call it, than I've ever experienced in my life. Um, it, both in my experience at Harvest, my wife is, is a psychologist, and she told me the other day, she said, John, I'm seeing young people at 30, 32, 33, who have a whole history of of scarring in this area that it took a whole lifetime to used to get to. Now it's happening because we've we've bought into the bait. Uh, You know, we do live in a world and a culture, a global culture, uh, thanks to social networks and the Internet and the web, where sexual fulfillment is held out as life's highest aim. And the idea of denying sexual satisfaction is tantamount to adopting to live a life of misery and emptiness. I mean, isn't that the messages that we get? Don't believe that. Don't buy into that. We live in a world in a sense where sexual desire, sexual identity, and sexuality has almost become the be-all and end-all of everything, including our identity. For followers of Jesus, that is a misplaced identity. Our identity is always in Him, even though we may struggle very deeply with things that we'd rather not struggle with, even though we have desires, uh, disordered desires and disordered hearts. That is never to be our identity. We've elevated this to a place in a sense it was never meant to be. Uh, Some of you may have heard of an author named Paul Tripp. He's written several good books. He wrote a book a few years ago called Sex and Money. Here's what he said. He said, sex and sexuality is a list of a whole catalog of created things that are good things, but can become bad things when they become ruling things. If you allow your heart to be ruled by sex or sexual pleasure or power or whatever it gets you, not only will you misuse the good gift of God, but you will end up being controlled by it. Sexual distortion and compulsions don't exist because sex is bad, but because we put it in a place, we were never meant to put it and place it. And you know, this is one of those gifts God gave that is one of the greatest gifts of all times. I remember I was speaking to a group of students at the University of Pennsylvania about a year ago. And uh, right after during the Q&A, I remember this uh, young Asian student stood up and said, I just think God is the ultimate killjoy when it comes to sex. And I said, oh, really? And I said, oh, no, quite the opposite. Can you think of any other uh, scripture, any other religion, where the first words that God ever said to people was said? He said, "Have sex and have lots of it," in the right context. <laughs> and that's my paraphrase of, of Genesis one twenty four. It says, "Be fruitful and mo-. of all the things he could have said, that's what he said." So in his eyes, it's something good, but in our hearts, and our pain. In our disordered desires, it can be something controlling and ugly. But we live in this kind of world. Now, we also know, uh, Paul says here, that that God's given us a different kind of calling. Uh, But the working out of that calling can be very hard in our lives. It causes us to to, uh, bring death to our hearts and desires in ways that we might have cultivated things. You know... uh, I love what Tim Keller says when he defines John Owens' definition of repentance. He says, repentance is killing that which is killing me without killing myself. Killing that which is killing me without... And you know, we don't know how to do that on our own. We need each other to know how to do that. We need each other to to, to live the kind of life that Paul is talking about here. But even then, uh, trying to do that, uh, work out that calling among the household believers is often that which is attempted in silence and secrecy with ups and downs, full of shame, uh, and yet it always impacts us in the body. But it's also, and this is my second point, it's concealed in the church. You know, when I first got interested in uh, uh, this ministry of Harvest USA through a missions professor, it was a class where you talk about the philosophy of mission work. I remember we talked about the philosophy mission work in Asia and Africa and South America. And one day he came in and said, we're going to talk about a different mission field today. We're going to talk about an unreached people and a hidden people. Now, those are missionary terms. And he went on, this was 35 years ago actually, and he said the biggest unreached people group in our culture today is the gay and lesbian community. And because the church says, hands off, we don't want to have anything to do with them, he says it's the fastest growing people group in America. But it's a people group that needs Christians to get in there and engage and mix up and love. But then he said there's even a bigger group than that, though. There's the unreached people. And that's the folks in our churches who come, come to Jesus, but they bring all the baggage and scars of their sexual struggles into their life and into their work life with Christ, but they sit in in the chairs and pews, and don't talk about it much, and don't know how the gospel applies because we don't talk about it much. And that intrigued me. Here was a guy that um, uh, I respected, that himself, he and his wife had been missionaries to prostitutes in Korea for 20 years, saying the church needs to be about this. Uh, But what keeps us from from addressing these things in our lives? Well, it can be fear and shame. That's a big motivator. Um, What will people think? So they know, and I talk about things going on in my heart with this. But another thing that might keep us from doing that is that we're just disillusioned and seek to be- cease to believe the gospel in these areas of our life. We've made hundreds of vows to, to be different, but we can't be. To, to, to deal with sin in our life, but we fail. Uh, that's the reason I actually wrote a book about a year ago called Hide or Seek When Men Get Real with God About Sex. It was because I wanted... To write something so that men especially, but women as well, would begin to see the hope of the gospel for them right where they're at. And rebelieve believe that Jesus wants to do something personal and powerful in your life. Uh, the other thing that can keep us from, from uh, addressing these things in our life is we, we minimize the impact and effect that it has on us. And we don't realize the devastation to our soul and the devastation to future relationships Uh, that it's going to have. I grew up in the uh, 50s and 60s, and I had a lot of scarring in my life in this area. Uh, By the time I was 17 or 18 years old, and it took God's grace and some people to come around me and disciple me to put me on a new track. But these are struggles that we need to expect among the body of Christ. Tim Keller wrote an article a few years ago, and I'd like to read you a, a few paragraphs in that article. He said this, I quote him a lot. He actually was a mentor of mine years ago. Um, He says, any effective and growing church will have lots of sexual strugglers in it. To go further, they will also have many others with life-standing patterns of dominating sin and struggle. When people sit in our pews, they're all in various stages of dealing with their problems. Some are in denial there's a problem. That's one stage. Some know their sin is against God's law, secretly rebel, and live lives of deception. But some are struggling with various degrees of success and failure, trying to make the changes God requires. Others have learned how to regularly and effectively access the grace and the gospel to live changed and holy lives. Now that's that's enough mouthful, but listen to what he says now. The challenge of the church is to assist people at all these stages. That's no small task. We minister to the self-deceived. We lovingly confront those in rebellion. We offer forgiveness to the guilt-crushed. We provide hope to the despairing and support to the surrendered. And then he even goes to a different level. He says this, Today the church must invite in and hold the attention of those who would formerly never ever dare or desire look to the church for hope and help. Imagine that, telling people that the gospel has something to say about your struggle in this area. That's a novel idea, but we need to do that more and more today Uh, because we're starting more and more uh, to look like uh, this young guy I'm going to describe now. Whenever I share something, by the way, it's always by permission, but here's an email I got from a guy a few months ago. He says, I'm 24, finishing up at," at Blank University with my master's. I became a Christian several years ago, but I struggle heavily with pornography. I've grown to want Christ in my life more and more. However, by flirtation with sexual sin and the deceitful lies they promised, it's all gone downhill. My desires have drawn me away, and I compromise. It's become an addiction. Each year now, crossing more barriers and boundaries than I ever thought I would. I don't think he thought that would happen when he first started toying with it. I live in depression and avoid people. I feel sorrow for my strain and I still can't believe God. I've given up God for what I've known now. I isolate myself against my own desire. I rage against sound wisdom. Even though I still feel God convicting my heart from time to time but now sinking into pornography, chat rooms, and cyber sex. I'm no longer a credible witness. I've become narcissistic, proud, and self-righteous. He had a real glimmer of uh, clear thinking here, but here's the point, I want to know freedom from all this I want to know him again and regain the essence of who I once was but I see no way out, help now can you hear the desperation in that young guy's voice and I share that to say that nobody sets out to get hooked on, on things do they They just take you just take the next step because it seems to promise life it seems to meet some need but pretty soon it's in charge, you're not And I also uh, share that because it perfectly shows that we do become oriented to whatever it is that we give our hearts to. And and Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church here, uh, give your heart more and more to Jesus. Give your heart more and more to Jesus. Become more Jesus-oriented so that these things can take their proper place. Verse 7 says, He did not call us to be impure but live a holy life, You know that for an increasing number of folks around us, that's becoming more and more of a pie-in-the-sky daydream? One of the things we have to do is help each other learn how to say no to ungodliness and evil desire, but also help each other struggle well. You know, this world is a struggle, and things of the flesh are struggles. And we're apt to throw up our, our hands and say, there's no hope. It's too powerful. C.S. Lewis knew something of this when 75 years ago he wrote these words. He said, our warped natures, the devils who tempt us, and all the contemporary propaganda for lust in 1941, these all combine to make us feel that the desires we're resisting are so natural, so healthy, and so normal, it's perverse and abnormal to ever try to resist. Now isn't that, again, what our own hearts often say? Isn't that what the culture says to us? You feel it, you do it. We have to help each other learn how to struggle well in these areas. Uh, And we have to learn to help each other run to the throne of grace at our time of greatest need. You know, I was talking to a a struggling guy a few weeks ago about this, uh, who was uh, recounting a failure he had had morally. And I said, what would it look like for you to begin to invite Christ into your life at the first inklings that your heart was going south in this way? And by the way, I I keep living under the illusion, even being a believer for 40 years, that I'm not going to want bad things for my heart someday. But you know what? That's only going to be when I reach heaven. (laughs) We have to deal with the fact that our hearts want to go south in these areas, and the people that we love in these areas— this side of heaven. I said, what would it be like for you to start taking those thoughts to Christ, to run into the throne of grace? Not when you figured it out or after you have paid your vows for your sin, but to run to him in the midst of your most x vile thoughts. And he said, John, that's a novel thing. Run to the cross, run to the uh, throne. I don't know anything but know how to slink back. That's said a lot. I just know how to sleep back to the cross. You know, the Lord frees us up to experience joy as believers, even in our fallen sexuality. Now, I don't know many people that those two words go together, sexual struggles and joy. But that's what God calls us to as we begin to learn to love and obey him, again, through the help of others. Now, why do we have such a hard time with these things anyway? Uh, I think it's because, again, what Paul Tripp says, he says this, he says, the way we handle sex really reveals who's at the center of our life. It will always reveal whether I'm at the center of my universe or I'm a created independent creature. The way I handle it or mishandle it will always reveal who's ruling my heart. It will tell whether I'm living in submission or rebellion, in an idolatrous relationship or a covenantal one. Now get this, he says, it always demands my acute awareness. Therefore, sex and my proneness to misuse it reveals my ongoing need for mercy and grace. And then he says this. He says, God's call to holiness, much like Paul saying here, we have to realize it's as impossible for me to achieve in and of myself as it would have been to save myself. We need all the help of God's people. And then again, it's not just about stopping some things, doing other things, although we may need to stop some things and do other things, but it's really about Jesus entering those places. I love the book, The Valley of Vision. Does anybody know that book, Puritan Prayers? There's a a prayer in there that says this. It says, Teach me to believe that if I would ever have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but I must invite Jesus to dwell in its place. He must become more dear to me than my vile lusts have been. His sweetness, power, and life must dwell there. And we have to help each other do that more today than ever before, I think. Now, so it's hidden in the church, but we need to bring it to light in each other's lives. And if you're here today struggling with something uh, that you know you need to talk to somebody about, think about somebody you trust this week. Ask God to give you the power to open your heart to go and talk about the secret in your life it's keeping you from being the man or woman of Jesus that you know he wants you to be. You know, he does give us clean clothes as his people, fallen, broken, corrupt people. And the gospel really is for sinners, we have to realize that. It's for the dishonest, the shady, the damaged, the distorted, the would-be frauds, even among our hearts. And that's what the essence of corrupt means. And this passage says that's who we are by nature. But you know, it would be a shame if if we were just left there. You know, I was a a classics major at the University of Tennessee many years ago. And uh, one of the things I learned about Aristotle was that he believed there was this force behind all things. It was very impersonal, far away, and involved. In fact, he labeled that force the unmoved mover. Folks, you know, that is not our God. Sometimes that's what we think he is. But we could say he is the moved mover. He is moved by our struggles and the plights of our hearts and the messes and scars and pits that we're in and yearns to do something about it. It's the whole gist of this passage that God takes up residence in us to sift us and make us like himself. In fact, what he wants to do is pull a Star Trek on us. You know, I heard they're making the 16th Star Trek movie. I think it's a 61 or something. But you know, when I was a kid, uh, I remember Thursday night. It was that uh, program that came on, and I know it was probably a cardboard cutout and a basketball planted to look like the Earth on that uh, opening scene of Star Trek. But you remember the words to the opening of every movie in that program: "The five-year mission of the Starship Enterprise to boldly go where no man has gone gone before, to seek out strange new worlds." But do you realize that's what the role of the Holy Spirit is in your life and mine? And he's committed to doing that until we reach heaven. And he's not surprised by what he finds in those strange worlds, but he wants to lovingly embrace it. You know, one of the things I realized as I first read the Gospels 40 years ago in my own sexual mess of a life was that the sexually disenfranchised, outcast condemned and strugglers, were particular objects of Jesus' time, attention, and affection. And I want you to say they still are, and they need to be for us as well. We can boldly approach the throne of grace with these things in our lives and seek to live like Paul speaking here because one of the things God does is he mingles his grace with all the mess he sees in us. He mingles his grace with our corruptions. Now, I was reading in Hebrews 11 not long ago, about those heroes of the faith. You know, I think there are 32 of them there. And it says many more that he was thinking about. But I read through there and I saw David. Okay, David, David was, we know more about David than any other man in antiquity, in any other, other classics, I know that. Uh, you know, he, he gave us a, most a lot of God's word. Uh, he was a man after God's own heart. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 51 is uh, a model for repentance. Uh, but even after all that, all he gave us, David was still a very flawed man in many ways. He could be arrogant. He could be hot-headed. We know about his adultery and repentance. But, and sometimes when you read through the Chronicles, uh, Chronicles and Kings fills in the gaps of other things, we also learn that he had seven wives and some concubines Now, now that he didn't give up. Now, what was that about? <laughs> Here was a redeemed man with still some unredeemed stuff going on in his life, right? And then I read through that lesson. and I found Samson. I thought, Lord, you've got to be kidding. Samson? He is the Charlie Sheen, or should I say, Justin Bieber of our day. <laughs> He's the person who would be on the tabloid at the checkout counter at the grocery store. Uh, you know, when he was a young guy, you know, uh, God said to his people, don't take foreign wives because they will take your hearts away. And, um, uh, so he saw this girl uh, getting some water by a creek, and he told his parents, go get her for her, for me. And his parents did put up a little fight. They said, isn't there a girl among the Hebrews that you could marry? No, go get her for me. And they did. Then we learned that um, Samson frequented houses of prostitution. Then we find out, we know that his love or his lust for Delilah was his downfall and was almost the kingdom's downfall. So how can these people be listed there? Just this. I think it's the ordinary picture of a follower of Jesus seeking to live a holy life with still lots of corruption and still lots of stuff that needs to be refined, but mixed with grace. Now, another one of my favorite books is a book called The Godly Man's Picture. If you've never read that, it's very good. It's written in 1666 by Thomas Watson, but he has a chapter in that book called Comfort to the Godly. I think it should have been called Comfort to the Scoundrels, but Comfort to the Godly, and he says this, Do you ever with weeping eye look upon Jesus and bring all those lusts that you love to him? There are in the best of believers interweavings of sin and grace, a dark side with a light side, pride mixed with humility, earthliness mixed with heaviness. Even in the hearts of followers of Christ, there is often more corruption than grace. So much smoke that you can barely discern the fire of grace. So much bad passions at times that you can hardly see any good passions. A Christian in this life is more like a glass of beer that has more foam in it than beer. (laughs) Yet, when God puts his tenderness into your heart, he will always cherish the work of the Spirit there. No matter what. Christ will never quench remnants of grace because in his sight, a little grace is as precious as a lot of grace. As a fire may be hidden in the embers, so grace may be hidden in many disorders of the soul. Folks, that should give us hope about the areas of our life that we know that need to be refined, that we, need to, we know Jesus needs to do some powerful work in. It should also give us compassion and love for people who are struggling in different ways, who may not have seen God's way yet, who may take three steps forward, one step back, He gives us his Holy Spirit. That's the gist of the whole passage. And he's there as a deposit for eternity. That passage says something about being holy four times. That's what combats and can combat our disordered loves and desires. Because you see, it's in the broken and the desperate that God most yearns to work. You believe that, don't you? No, you don't. I don't believe it most of the time. But it is. It's God's way. Um and I'll end with this uh, example. There's a statue that was sculpted by Michelangelo in the city of Florence. I've actually seen that statue. But uh, if you were a craftsman like Michelangelo or an artist, uh, how would you go about performing this uh, commission? Well, number one, you would find the best tools, right, as a sculpture. I have three adult children who are all artists of one type or another. And actually, the premier art school in Philadelphia was called Utrecht's. And I not tell my wife, why does every tool in that place cost at least $200? <laughs> but, uh, but we would go after their tools they needed to do what they were going to do with their artwork. Uh, but Michelangelo would have done the same thing. He would have got his hammers, his chisels, and once he had those, then he would look for the perfect piece of rock. He would look for a piece of granite or marble. Because remember, uh, you're... Uh, And For for those of you in construction or something, you you know that your next job is only going to be there based on how good your last job was, right? So that was true of artists as well. So Michelangelo would would go look for his piece of rock uh, to commission this this work Uh, because you would want only the best piece you could find, right? Not with Michelangelo. In fact, one day he was walking down an alleyway and he passed a trash bin uh, a trash heap, and he saw another piece of rock that another artist had started to work on, but had discarded, and it had sat there for 32 years in the trash pile. Too, too flawed, too cracked, can't do anything with that. But as he stood there, and envisioned through his master craftsman eyes and hands what that thing could be, well, you know the rest of the story. He took that piece of rock home, and it became the statue of David. Now, isn't it like that in your life and mine? God wants to take the most shameful, the hardest parts of our heart, our past records, our present struggles, the things that would shame us the most, the things that would make us run for cover if we thought anybody knew it, and he wants to turn them and he wants to turn us into works of beauty. It's all in him, it's all of grace, it's through his Holy Spirit, and it's primarily worked out in his laboratory, the Church of Jesus Christ. Amen.